Welcome to Your Teen with Sue and Steph. I'm Sue. And I'm Steph. And we are the co-founders and owners of Your Teen Media, the resource for parenting tweens and teens. And today we are excited to be talking with Anne-Marie Hayes. She's our friend. We've known her for years. And actually, Eka, who works for Your Teen, read her book, Three Keys to Keeping Your Teen Alive, Lessons for Surviving the First Year of Driving. And when we got to Anne-Marie to interview and have her on a panel, I mean, Eka thought she had met royalty. So you are so lucky because today you are also going to meet royalty. And we are going to talk about really one of the most nerve-wracking parts of raising teens, teaching them to drive. But before we talk to her, you know, we've, we've got some experience in this department. So first of all, Steph, I learned something today because, well, you know, just owning our own business, we learn something every day. But here... What I learned is that I was trying to find out what's it called, the, th- the clutch grip, you know, the thing that you hold on to when you're <laughs> teaching yes. your kid to drive. Because what I remember is thinking that holding on to that was the only thing between me and death in some very weird sense of security. So I looked it up and it's got a, people talk about this a lot. Like, what are those ceiling handles called? And apparently many people think it's called oh shit handles. I was just going to make that joke. That's so funny. I was going to use a different four letter word that rhymes with duck, but yes, that's what I was going to (laughs) say. Yeah. So anyway, if you look it up, you can find that out. Ceiling handles in a car. How are, do they have a name? The most common name is that. So, you know, we thought we would share with you guys now that we've, I've done five drivers, Stephanie's done three drivers. We've had so much opportunity to talk to experts and feel like we did a crappy job. But I, looking back, I came up with easily things that I would do differently now that I know better. And hopefully you guys are going to feel this way after you hear Anne-Marie. And if you haven't done it yet, it's going to make a huge difference. But so my number one is that I would lay out the rules before we start any of this process. Because every single step of the way, you lose more and more power. So, you know, I don't know. I just didn't know. I did not know enough about the whole experience to know what I should know. But even when I did know, because I'd already done two kids, three kids, four kids, I still never got better at this one. So I'll let Stephanie tell hers. And then I've got some examples of what I would have done in the in the laying out the guidelines beforehand. So I appreciate you taking the first one off my plate because I would have, <laughs> that was my first one was laying out like what, expectations is what I called it, but it, it sounds like the same thing. So I'm going to my second one, which was I set up, so in Ohio, I don't know if it's true everywhere that you, we needed, they needed 50 hours, right? To sign off on that, like affidavit, the affidavit that they've had 50 hours. So we were, I kept like this, literally like this sheet of how many hours we did and we were, quote, getting to 50, I would have reversed it and said, when we get to 50, we're going to assess how many more hours you need. Okay. That's such a good one. But the other thing that I did was 50 hours of driving to the grocery store and back. Now, (laughs) I was lucky enough because I was teaching Zach and we heard that from Anne-Marie, don't do the grocery store 50 times. Like once you've done it twice, check that one off the list. So I learned that was such a great one. I would have, I would have done the grocery store a billion times. It would have been ridiculous. Right. Because what they tell you, right. They tell you, get these numbers of hours in, but no one says how healthy it would be to travel on rural roads and city roads and and experience all the the whole depth of what your kid is going to be exposed to. Okay. So here's what I could say about 
what I would have set in advance. And Steph, jump in if you've got anything to add. So before they get their permit, I would sit down and say the expectations during this permitted time. You know, what is this going to look like when I give you feedback and you don't want to hear from me because you know more than I do already because you've had one class of of driver's ed. Like just laying out that your ticket to getting your license is that I'm more experienced and that the snark in the car makes everyone angry and upset. And that's not a good way to be driving. So oh, like, that's so good. Yeah. Who knew? Who, who knew? knew? Well, hopefully all of our listeners now, but yes, who knew? Well, I think part of it is because like either my kids were so nervous mm-hmm. that it threw them. It almost was like, just let me be because they were too nervous or they were cocky and they were like, I got this. I got this. And neither one of those is particularly helpful. And like, you know, I don't really know what I'm doing either, but I know you just stopped at the stop sign too far into the intersection. And I want you to know that causes an accident. So let's do this road again. You will stop at the stop sign before you get to the stop sign. That was like what I would do before permitted. And then before the license, I don't know if you had this, but my kids felt like the license was evidence of mastery. Exactly. That the the state had now deemed them like not just new drivers, but like great competent, Mm -hmm. competency. Yeah, (laughs) right. (laughs) Mastery even more than competency. Like Mm -hmm. just they they get an A plus and they are ready to go. So after that point, it was really hard to to still be a teacher. Which of course, fifty hours of driving is not enough to get you comfortable with all the things that get thrown at you. So I have heard of people who say that the the license, if their kid's not ready, they don't consider that like you get the car and you go. But we're so I was so desperate to have somebody to be able to drive and help out that I was like, yay with them. But if I did it again, I'd take safety over help. Right. They think it's mastery. We to a degree think it's mastery, but There were times where we were back in the car with them. This goes back to something you said at the beginning about like how it's going to go down in the car in terms of like receiving feedback, essentially. I would have built in weekly, kind of like how we did the college thing. We talked about it once a week. I would have built in like Sundays, we're going to drop, like when we have something to do, I'm actually going to go with you on those errands or we're going to, or do the highway or whatever, because I mean, you talk about them not being open to feedback even during the process. Once they have that license, I mean, they're like, you know, I have my license. I'm like, you know, you almost hit that car. So like I would even extend the like, um, almost like the lessons continue for a period of time and setting up that expectation. Like, yeah, like I'm okay with you getting your license, but just so you know, the next three months after daddy or I, or, you know, we're going to be driving with you to, to just see kind of how you're, I mean, we know that it is experience and hours in the car. And the 50 hours or 60 or whatever you want to call it is nowhere near the life experience. Anne-Marie says a number that's, I think it's 100, that even if your state says 50. She's also from Canada and their laws, the graduated, like how you get your, I forget what they call it. Graduated uh, driver's license. Yes, but there's something else they call it in um, Canada. There's another thing you have different, the, the the grades are different. So they'll say, oh yeah, I have my blah, blah. I forget what it's called. And it allows different things. It's actually a pretty good system. But the hundred hours wasn't about the law. That That was like, how many hours does a kid need to be behind the wheel before they are 
even in the early stages of mastery. So if your state says less than 100 and you're really worried about your kid's safety, just tell them in your house it's 100. Like totally. You can make whatever rules you want. They, they would say things to me like, you know, you're the only one that is making like making their kid get 50 hours. I was like, that is so fascinating. Cause they, they would mention a kid's name, Bobby. I'd be like, wow, that's so funny. Cause I always thought that they really liked Bobby. Clearly we love you more than they love Bobby. And we would make, like, I would try and make a joke out of it. Cause I'm like, you know what? Like we're handing you this 2000 pound, like basically weapon and we're going to let you go. Like it just doesn't even make any sense. Also, when you really look into the, to Johnny's parents, you know, most p- kids are telling their parents that no one else is doing exactly. it. And it's really, I mean, most, most parents want their kids to come home safely. So this is like, please, this exactly. is a pretty serious thing. Okay. To that end, I would have given my kids a defensive driving course. We have a great place here and it never, I tried it once, once we knew the person who ran it and the dates never worked out. And it was just, you know, again, in convenience over safety, but I would flip that equation and I would just say, this is what we do. And you know what? We did it with one kid because he had never driven in bad weather the way his birthday, what, whatever. So he was getting his license and we're like, dude's never been in like a snowstorm or whatever. And in Cleveland, that's like, you know, 400 days a year. That's not true. 300 <laughs> days a year. <laughs> tell tell me like your 400. math. <laughs> right. <laughs> Feels like 400. And so he took it and he actually said, he will say to this day, he'll be like, that's the most he's ever learned in that four hours. And we actually did it with like his play group, a bunch of the moms that like he knew since he was a little guy, we're like, okay, you guys are all going. So hopefully you guys have somewhere near you where you can do that. Cause I think like, you know, there's just not enough time in what we're giving our kids and experiences. And they, they can actually manufacture situations that your kid might encounter and not have a reflexive response and start to learn it. My last one, I think that driver's ed should be viewed as getting your permit. It's, it's a requirement and it's meaningless, depending on where you live and who, which course mm. you go to. It is, I felt like it was my partner in teaching my kids to drive, but it really wasn't. And I you know, relied on it too much until I started hearing my kids talk about what actually took place in driver's ed. And I was like, oh yeah, pretty worthless. If you're counting on that in any way, rid yourself. Unless your school has a reputation of really being extraordinary, I think, you know, it's it's like literally just ticking a box of having done it. Yeah. Okay. I have one thing to add. And this was, I think this was on kid number three and she was doing her in-car. Yeah. She must've been doing her in-cars and it, the weather was awful here. Like scary. Like I wouldn't want to drive. And I'm looking at the weather and the guy's supposed to be picking her up, you know, in like half an hour. And I'm like, oh my God, how am I going to, like, I got to cancel this. Then I'm like, wait, why would I cancel that? Like all of a sudden I'm like, oh my God, that was the best two hours. I like, it's almost like you should take the farmer's almanac or look at the weather and schedule your kids driving on the worst possible days. Like instead of trying to protect them, looking at that as like you are prepping them in this horrible weather with someone who actually has a break on their side of the car (laughs) versus us. Yeah. So what I want to say is that so much of what we're telling you today, we learned from Anne Marie years ago, and you're going to get brand new ones from her in this podcast. So up next is our conversation with her. It's so exciting. We <laughs> was It's long. so exciting that Sue can't wait for you to join us, but I also, I, we can't wait for you to join us.
There is no hood like parenthood. When you meet a fellow parent, you just kind of get each other on a whole nother level. Hi, I'm Kanika Chanda Gupta. I'm a former CNN journalist, mom of three, including twins, and host of That's Total Mom Sense, the podcast. I interview change makers on their life lessons, legacy, and superpower of intuition, aka their mom sense and dad sense. I've had some pretty amazing parents on my show. Hey, what's up? I'm Kelly Rowland. Hi, this is Chelsea Clinton. It's me, Bobby Brown. Can't wait to share my story. Episodes release every Thursday. Subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts and on YouTube. Join my tribe at thatstotalmomsense.com and follow me on Instagram at Kanika Chanda Gupta. I'm thrilled to be on this journey with you. Hi there. I'm Heather Drago. And I'm Sarah Saunders. We host the podcast, That's a Hard No, about saying no and setting boundaries. So you can become that true and empowered you that this world needs. Saying no isn't just okay. It's the key to living an authentic, fulfilling life. I'm a licensed professional clinical counselor. So while this podcast is in no way a replacement for one-on-one therapy, I suppose I know what I'm talking about. I'd say so. We talk about learning to say no and set healthy boundaries and how it impacts mental health, physical health, relationships, parenthood, and more. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and visit our website, hardnopodcast.com. We're here to help you find your no and say it unapologetically. That's a hard no. Anne-Marie Hayes is a certified driving instructor and author of Three Keys to Keeping Your Teen Alive, Lessons for Surviving the First Year of Driving. Anne-Marie, thank you so much for joining us today. most common question that parents ask about teens and driving? The sad fact is that parents don't ask a lot of questions about driving and teens. They assume a lot. For example, parents assume that all driving schools are good driving schools. Not true. There are some excellent ones and there are some very poor ones. So parents assume a lot and they really don't ask a lot of questions. What's the question you wish parents would ask? What should they be asking? I really think we all underestimate how complex driving is. And I think the question parents should ask is, how can I best prepare my teen to make sure that they will drive safely? Because, you know, when parents help their teens practice. Often it's, okay, we're going to the supermarket, we're going to the church, we're going to the synagogue, you can drive. Well, that is good practice, but it's not nearly enough. They need practice on in rain, in snow, if that's where you live. They need practice in windy weather, on highway highways, depending on the level of license and what the restrictions are. At some point, they need driving practice. Uh, what do you do when there's a truck next to you? What do you do when um, a police car is coming up behind you? Like there are so many variables that practice has to be 
long and varied, and the parent can't be sitting in the next seat with a cell phone or looking out the window, you know, kind of la, la, la. It's really structured practice, and the parent needs to be sober and in tune and really coaching as they go. But I really think the best start is with a good driving course first. Okay, so let's step back a minute, and it might be that you are, they started their driving course, but they haven't had a driving lesson with that person. So you want to take them out into a parking lot, which is often the place that people go the very first time. You know, we hear from a lot of parents, I remember this myself, like, I don't know what I'm doing. No one taught me how to be a teacher of driving. So what's the first thing you do when you sit in that car with your kid and they're like, so what do I do? And you're thinking, I don't know. Well, the first thing that I would do is start with the owner's manual and go through the dashboard. And what are the what are the signals on the dashboard? What does the dashboard tell you? How do you know if your gas is low? How do you adjust different things? Start with that. And if you had to change the tire, how do you do it? Where's the jack? Like those kinds of things. Talk about the vehicle. If you had an emergency situation and you have to put on your four-way flashers, where are they? How do you signal? And, and before you even move the car, start talking about the car itself. Then if you get to that point where you're ready to start moving the car, first of all, you want them to walk around the car. And there have been several instances lately where somebody has come out of a house, jumped in the car, back down a driveway, and there was someone behind it. There was a child playing behind it. There was, you know, so you always walk around the car. And from the teen's perspective, that's a good thing too, because if you've got your mom's car, and she's, she said you could use it today, this is after they have, a, you know, a second level license, you want to walk around that car every time before you get in it, because if it got scratched overnight, or if there's a dent in it that maybe you're mom didn't notice. You don't want to be blamed for what's already on the car. So it's always good practice. And when you walk around, you're going to check the tires, you're going to check the windows, you're going to check for dents, and make sure that the car is in good shape. There aren't any nicks on the tires that look like they could be dangerous. The tire doesn't look flat. The lights are clear and um, headlights, rear tail lights, and just before you even get in the car. Then when you get in the car, you want to adjust the headrest, you want to adjust the seat. One of the things that parents often don't know, and and I didn't know because I grew up before we had airbags, is you must be at least 10 inches back from the airbag. At least. Didn't know that. Yeah, and for (laughs) short people, that's kind of an issue, right? No, it's because if that airbag deployed, it could crush your chest. It deploys so fast and people think it's a big pillow. It's not. It deploys very quickly and then immediately deflates. It can really prevent serious injuries to you, but if you're not properly seat belted and you're not far enough back, it can do a lot of damage. I see even older people riding with dogs in their laps. I talked to one police officer who told me that he attended a scene where a lady died because she had a dog on her lap, the airbag deployed. It not only killed the dog, but one of the bones from the dog pierced her heart and she died too. I mean, we just need to be more mindful about driving 
and um, being far enough back. And from the passenger's perspective, every time I see a, a teen or even somebody older with their feet on the dashboard, I cringe. There was a young lady here several years ago now who was riding with her boyfriend and they were coming home from somewhere, feet up on the dashboard. There was a collision. He was fine. He was seat belted properly. He was far enough back from the airbag. Her knees hit her head and she is brain damaged for the rest of her life. Her feet are three sizes shorter. Teens focus on that because she'll never wear high heels. But she is a totally different person than she was when she got in the car that day. So those kinds of things. I mean, we have songs about put your feet up on the dashboard and and kick back. You know, very, very dangerous. And I, I think we all underestimate the dangers of vehicles. That's a good segue into our ne- our next question about teen driving contracts. What does it look like and when do you suggest that we create that? Well, the driving contract, I mean, really is whether you write it down or you just talk about it, doesn't really matter. I mean, whether they sign it or not doesn't really matter, but you need to have the conversation. What's allowable in the vehicle? Some of the things, now, cannabis is legal all across Canada, A lot of, and and so we've had a lot of discussions about this. A lot of young people think that driving with someone who's high is a much better choice than driving with someone who has been drinking. It's not. The, it looks different, but it is not safe. So you need to have conversations about drugs and about alcohol. What is allowed, what's not allowed. And uh, I would go heavy on the not allowed. But that's for everyone in the vehicle, like everyone in the vehicle, to the extent that you, they can't be drinking or doing drugs in the vehicle. And what about the phone? Does a phone get included in that contract? Of course. And and not only, I mean, my personal belief is that it's not only handheld devices, which here, hand, it's, uh, it's illegal to use a handheld device. So whether it's a GPS or it's a phone, that's illegal to actually have it in your hand. But I would take it further than that because if you have a handheld device, then it's a, it takes your hand off the wheel, it takes your eyes off the road, and it takes your mind off driving. If you are using a hands-free device, your mind is still not on driving. And I remember I was listening to NPR in the car one time and a lady was talking and she said she had driven for many miles and she got pulled over by the police for speeding in a construction zone. And she said, I was irate. And I said, you know, if you're going to lower the speed limit in a construction zone, then you have to put up signs. And he said, well, there were signs. She got the ticket. She was mad as heck. Next day, she drove that. And she said, I drove by five different signs that advised of the lower speed limit. But she was talking hands-free, and she just was not paying attention. So it's, it's still a distraction. It takes your mind off driving. Sometimes... The law says one thing, but as parents, we have the most to lose. It's we have to make our own rules too, sometimes even beyond what graduated driver licensing says. And another rule I think should be about loaning out the car. A lot of young people, they're sitting around with their friends, someone wants to go and get a pizza. There is liability to giving the keys to somebody else. Are they fully licensed? Are they a responsible driver? Are they high? I mean, a lot of questions need to be asked, and it's very hard for teens to ask those questions. So putting a rule in place that you cannot loan this car to anyone or I'll take the keys away makes it very easy for them, sorry, 
You know, if I loaned you the car and anything happened, my mom would kill me and I'd lose the car. So no, can't do it. It gives them a fallback position. Also in our state, it turns out that the car owner is the only one who's covered by insurance. So if you let someone else drive your car, it's still your insurance that gets the bump in in, uh, cost if there's anything that goes wrong. So it's good to know those rules and look at that also as kind of power. And God forbid that anybody is injured because it's then it's just a complete tragedy. So rules about that are really important. What about weapons in the car? I mean, it can a friend get in with a gun or a knife? I mean, I would say absolutely not to all of that. And, and you know, you can't bring that in my car. All those kinds of things. Okay, so let's move on to the next question, which is, Well, first of all, to your comment about a contract. So in my family, things don't count if they're not printed. I don't know why that is, but it's 100% across the board. So in my family, a printed driving contract would mean a commitment and a spoken contract would be a suggestion. So if you have my family, I would say print it out. But then we've heard this before. I don't, I never did this where like communities of friends, those parents get together And they agree to rules together so that all the kids have the same curfew. Have you ever seen that work? You know, parents are very, in my opinion, parents are very kind of secretive about what their rules are. I have never seen parents share rules like that. However, I think it's a really good idea. And especially because if your teen is the driver, then they're driving according to your rules. And there is a little bit of um, input. If you've done a lot of practice with them, you're comfortable with the way they're scanning the road, with the way they're stopping at stop signs, at stop lights. They're not, you know, you're comfortable with what you've taught them. You're comfortable with, in your case, Sue, the written contract that you have, and they'll abide by that. When they get in the car with somebody else, the neighbor or anybody else, then there's no contract. You don't know. You have no input into how that other person was trained to drive. So I would suggest that those conversations are really good to have with neighbors. You know, if my teen is going to be driving with your teen, let's agree on some ground rules. That's great. Let's move into best practices. How many hours should a permitted driver be on the road before they get their license? And not what the law says. Not I'm talking about what you think is the the right amount where that kid is ready to be on the road. I would say 100 hours. And that's like devoted practice. It's a different varied roads, different weather. What I see is parents saying, well, you know, it's raining today. Let's go tomorrow. Well, they're going to be driving in rain. And, you know, it's kind of icy out today. Let's not. Now, clearly, the first time they get behind the wheel, you're not going to take them out on icy roads. But after they've had practice, the practice needs to be year round. If you have multiple seasons, uh, you know, some people don't. California, Florida, I mean, it's kind of the same all the time. But um, if you have various seasons, they need to be able to drive in all of those seasons. The safest time for new drivers is when the parent is in the car with them or a licensed instructor is in the car with them. It's that first year when they're driving alone that is the most dangerous time when they're driving. 
So if anything happens, you want it to happen while you're there. I, when my daughter was learning to drive, I was co-driving with her and we were coming up to um, an intersection, a quiet kind of intersection, not a side street, a busier one than that, but not a major intersection. And as we're approaching, the light turns yellow. She had pulled into the intersection and she starts to make her left turn. And I yelled, stop. And she stopped. And then a car just sailed through in front of her. And she said, oh my God. And she was really shaken up about it. And she said, how did you know? And I said, I was watching her face. She was staring ahead. She didn't slow down. She didn't speed up. She was just, you know, kind of in a coma, in a coma driving. You are their second set of eyes. You are the experienced person on the road. And that's why it's so important to spend that time with them. And about a year later, she was driving by herself on a busy road now. And she, I was not her co-driver anymore. She already had her intermediate license. And she's sitting at, she's sitting in the middle of the intersection, ready to make her left turn. The light turned she waited. It turned yellow. She waited. One car went through. Second car went through. The light turned red. Third car went through with a baby seat in the back. If she had just followed by rote, it turned yellow, complete her turn, I would have probably been killed because I was in the passenger seat, but or certainly injured. But because of that kind of near miss, When I was in the car, she knew to wait until all of that traffic stopped. And so that's the the important part of being in the car with your teen and driving with them a lot until they have some appreciation of the responsibility of driving and knowledge of the rules and what they should, where they should be looking, what they should be doing. It's hard to move past what we take for granted now, which, which is that we've spent a lifetime driving and we we can integrate a lot of data coming at us and but we have to narrate it for them so that they also know to do it. So in I don't know if every state has graduated driver's licensing. Is that in every state? They do. Okay, so tell us what the the most typical rules are for GDLs, graduated driver's license. Okay, they're not the same everywhere, but there are five major dra- dangers. One is speed. And the first one is speed. And the reason it, it's not because of the ticket. It's because a crash, we did an episode with the Insurance Institute for Highway Safety. They're the crash test dummy people and for our podcast. And they talk about their crash tests and they do them at 40 miles per hour. Because if they did them faster than that, they would lose all their data. Everything would be destroyed. So a crash at 40 miles an hour provides really good data. Can you imagine the difference between that and 100 miles per hour? The car is shattered, and that's hitting a stationary object. If it's two cars colliding, you double the force. So speed is terrible for that because the the damage is much worse at higher speeds, often deadly. In addition to that, if you are a driver making uh, going through an intersection on, on uh, cross traffic, it, a speeding car is very hard to predict because they come up on you so fast, even though you scanned the intersection, you might have missed them. 
So speeding is um, dangerous from that perspective. What does that mean for GDL to be addressing speeding? I mean, everybody should be keeping the speed limit. So what is there something different if you have a... Well, I don't know what the rules are specifically in Ohio, but in Ontario, for example, first level drivers in G1, they cannot drive on highways with a speed over 80 kilometers, except in some certain circumstances. So there are named highways they cannot drive on. And the reason for that is because speed changes everything, but driving on highways is also a different kind of driving. There are instances where you have cars on both sides of you. You have to merge. You have to be able to get off safely, those kinds of things. So at a G1, an entry-level license here, you cannot drive on a highway, a high-speed highway, named highways and 400 series highways. So speed is a big one. How that is in Ohio, I'm not sure. However, it's not an issue. It Well, it is an issue, but it's... The consequences are graver if you're in your first year of driving. But I think they learn, our kids learn to drive on the highway as part of getting their, their license right away. Yeah, it's it's different here. We do... Reg- okay, well, so you have, you, have, you, have, you have four more things? Uh, yes, speed is one of them. The next one is seatbelts. Seatbelts are the number one thing that will save a crash from being a fatal crash. And so the seatbelt enforcement is very uh, strong for, uh, for graduated driver licensing here. The driver is responsible for making sure everybody in the car is has a working seatbelt. So that's the second one. The third one is impairment. Impairment is alcohol, drugs, and can be drowsy driving too. So there are strict rules about that. In Ontario, there's zero tolerance for alcohol and impairing drugs under age 22, regardless of your license. So that is a factor. Uh, Distracted driving is another one, but distracted driving is illegal for all drivers here. And then there's also a nighttime restriction. And that's because... It's harder to judge speed at night. There are animals and other, even people on the road that are much harder to see at night and everything looks different at night. And so there are restrictions on the time that teens are allowed to drive. And those five are most standard. In our state where we do have a graduated driver's license, the one that is talked about most here is that for your first year of driving, you can only have one non-family member in the car with you, and it is a secondary offense. So you'd have to get pulled over for something else, and therefore the kids don't take it seriously. Worse than that, what can happen is that they not only take it, don't take it seriously, because passenger restrictions are part of distractions. So I should have mentioned that. That is a restriction here too. But the other problem is that they think it's about the ticket. So it's, you know, the cops are coming. So you get down on the floor, you ride in the trunk, let's share a seatbelt. All those kinds of really bad decisions that can have tragic consequences. So it's really important that they do have passenger restrictions, but that it's not only about the ticket that the young people understand that this is our family rule too. And that means, you know, it's very dangerous to put someone on the floor. In the event of a rollover, that person gets ejected. They have no protection. It's important to have a lot of those conversations. 
Okay, so you you referenced, let's move to car maintenance. You referenced earlier showing the kids around the dashboard and what that looks like, looking at the the gas gauge, you know, does the car need gas? So that seems like an obvious one. What else should our kids know? Should they know how to change oil? Changing a tire? (laughs) What else? Like, what's reasonable? Well, most people don't change their own oil. And to get the oil changed is fairly inexpensive, but it needs to be done regularly. So, I mean, because you can really do damage, especially if you have a leak. So you need to be, they need to be mindful of that. Watching the stickers, you know, when is the next oil change due? And they should have an idea. Well, they should know how they know what oil to use when they do change the oil. So the it's either on the door jam on the driver's side and it's in the handbook, the driver's handbook. So there's lots of great information in there, the uh, owner's manual, and they should be knowing that that's where they'll find it. There's so many assumptions in this conversation that it Adults know this information too. I'm feeling shame come across my face as you talk about so many of these things. Okay, here is my question. When my kids learned to drive, they were taught like putting their hands on the wheel in a different way than I was taught. Like I think I was 10 and two. 10 and two, 10 and two. And they used to say that all the time. Now it's nine and three. And it's nine and three primarily because of the airbag. The airbag can deploy at 200 miles an hour. That is huge. And it not only do you have them at nine and and three, but you also don't hook your thumbs because thumbs are what separate us from most animals on earth. And if you break those thumbs, they're hard to recover. So your thumbs should be out on the steering wheel, not hooked. And I have a cousin who drives with her hand hooked around. And I mean, you could so easily badly break your wrist. So are there any other, like that's one thing that your kid tells you and you wanna argue that they're wrong, but it turns out the rules change there. So are there any other rules that changed since we were learning to drive? Well, there are a lot of features that have changed. And another one of the ones that if people are looking for vehicles for their teens, it's electronic stability control. Electronic stability control really helps in the event that the car is swerving, helps maintain control by deploying the brakes opposite where the car is starting to skid and can really be very helpful. And most cars have had that since uh, for the last 10 or so years. But putting a teen in like a 20-year-old car, if you can at all avoid it, there are much better safety features on more modern cars than there are on those old clunkers. Some parents have the idea that if I put my teen in a car with a lot of metal around them, that that will protect them. But in fact, the cars aren't built the same way. The passenger cage today is much better protected. And you have the airbags, the the front airbags, you have side airbags, curtain airbags now, which can protect passengers. Headrests are built differently. And if you adjust your headrest properly, then you can avoid getting whiplash. There are a lot of features like that. So, Emery, we're going to wrap this up with the question that we ask all of our guests. What is the biggest myth about teens and driving? The biggest myth, I think, is that 
Once they get that license, they know it. And this is, teens believe this. As soon as they get that license, they know everything there is to know about driving. And I can tell you that I have been driving for a very long time. I've had far more training than most people will ever have. And I am always learning new things because things change, cars change. Even look at the roads. We have far more bicycles on the road. We have scooters. We have all, I mean, mechanized wheelchairs. It's like a lot of different traffic on the road. Things change all the time. There is no such thing. And what the license actually means is that they have earned the right to continue to practice on public roads, not that they are the masters of everything to do with cars. And parents, I mean, I mean, I get it. Like there comes a time where you just really would like to hang up the keys to the family cab too, you know? It would be nice if they could run out and get the milk or the bread or whatever you need and that you don't have to take little Jimmy to soccer. But um, we really, it's, it, there. A mistake in a car is something that can never be taken back. And so we really need to put the time in up front to make sure that they are very well prepared because we have the most to lose. Anne-Marie Hayes, I'm not sure there's anyone out there who knows more about teaching kids to drive. And we're so grateful you took your time to come and tell our audience. My pleasure, thank you. Thanks for joining us for the Your Teen Podcast. If you have any topics that you want us to talk about, let us know on our Facebook page or email editor at yourteenmag.com. If you're someone who reads an article and thinks of that one friend who has to read it too, think of our podcast the same way. Please share with that friend who's going to say, oh my God, I can't believe I didn't know about Your Teen with Sue and Steph. And do us a favor and review and rate the show on the podcast platform of your choice. You can find more from us at yourteenmag.com, at evergreenpodcast.com, or anywhere you listen to podcasts. Your Team with Sue and Steph is a production of Evergreen Podcasts. Special thanks to executive producer Michael D'Aloya, plus producer Hannah Leach and audio engineer Eric Coltnow. We'll see you next time. Welcome to Guilty Greeny. I feel like we should start off this show by saying it's nearly impossible to be 100% sustainable given the current world we live in. How do you eat an elephant? One bite at a time. Not a great analogy for a vegetarian, but you know. We're talking uh, about sustainability, maybe not the best analogy. Don't eat the elephant is the first rule of the Guilty Greeny. There's your first challenge of the week. Avoid (laughs) elephants. What they used to call frugal is now considered sustainable. That's such an aha moment. Frugal to sustainable. You can save money and help the planet. That's going to be our new tagline for sure. You can find Guilty Greenie on Apple Podcasts or whichever podcast platform you prefer. And join us in tackling the Guilty Greenie challenges. Until then, stay curiously green. Green.